You're listening to the fifth episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working out, but is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God, despite everyone. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Research indicates that trigger warnings about sexual trauma have precisely the opposite effect to what you'd hope for. But Angel says... And I do want to put a trigger warning, or maybe I'll put a trigger warning at the top, because it's very terrible. Episode 5, Red Sweater. This song is another quirky little silly childish one that came to me suddenly, mostly all at once. It was part of othering how I was raised to view things by putting it into a song. Cheating, I know, to express an idea I don't agree with in words designed to highlight what my problem with the thing is. In the context of the album's story idea, the wanderer attends church, and here's a hymn which sums up the attitude of the folks in the Magic Castle. This is about purity culture, about that arbitrary sacred versus secular distinction so popular in evangelical circles. It is, ultimately, me realizing that I've been raised to actually live as little as possible, especially in this wicked, evil, systemically corrupt world. So, back in the day, as you do, I went with washing machine and comfy sweater imagery. I imagined being a nice sweater that was designed to never be worn, to never, in fact, leave the washing machine to just hide in there from all that dirt you heard is out there everywhere, and instead getting washed over and over again throughout the week until you're completely worn down to nothing, having never functioned as a sweater in anything but design, nor benefited anyone. Growing up, I never felt pressured by our church to benefit anyone in any way at all. The name of the game was keeping clean. Drama and the visual arts were defiling. TV was defiling, pop music was defiling, movies were defiling, and most worldly conversations with worldly people were definitely defiling, especially jokes. Best to avoid all of that. Reprove them by just not having anything to do with them. I was working one time for a company, and a man come up to the counter, a man I had never met before, and as I was getting his order ready, he began to tell me a filthy story. And I thought, oh, this is, what am I going to do? The f***ing pyramids, for Christ's sakes. Panama Canal, the Great Wall of China. Even a lava lamp. (laughs) To me, is greater than sliced bread. What's so great about sliced bread? You got a knife, you got a loaf of bread, slice the f***ing thing! And get on with your life. (laughs) We heard there was nothing but filth in modern movies and television. Nothing but dirty talk. Depraved stuff. Naked or near-naked women. People drinking alcohol. We could always cool down with a couple of ice-cold fosters. Mm. Tastes like an angel crying on your tongue. Peace, Spuds McKenzie. What party-loving happening, dude? So problematic, evidence of the world being systemically corrupt. 
Besides, it didn't look very Christian to be seen by everyone enjoying the usual worldly stuff offered by a systemically corrupt society instead of enjoying the church stuff that was made for us. In fact, it was a bad testimony, so some people might end up in hell due to your bad example, and it would be your fault. They told us overtly that God wanted us to be in, but not of, this world. It seemed to us, though, like we were supposed to live as if we weren't in it either like we weren't even quite really here, or certainly only here until maybe next week when the Lord returned for his own. My sister Debbie remembers how foreign and depraved regular church folks' houses seemed to us of purer eyes than to behold pinup girls, brethren people. I remember how spooky it felt to go over for the first time to one of my friends from high school, Wanda's place, and we had a science project. That's the only reason I was allowed to go over there. And I remember on the wall there was her father had like this pinup of a like topless woman. And I was just so embarrassed that this was there. And for Wanda, it was like, oh, it was just like a normal thing her dad had in the basement. They had a little bar in the corner. And I just thought I'd I'd gone to this like really wicked place. But at the same time, I was like, this is kind of fascinating. It's like it's like going through a haunted house almost. Mm-hmm. It it scared the crap out of me, but I was really wanted the to you know, be scared in this way. And it continued on even to um, when I first was dating uh, Mish before we got married, um, going over to his dad's house for the first time. It was still ingrained in me that these were people from the world. These were not people that um, I was supposed to associate with and who knows what was in their house. Chris, raised in our group, agreed that the song reflects how people like he and I were raised. Do you relate? Uh, yes, it, it definitely, that concept definitely sounds like the meeting. Be holy. I'm misquoting here, but be holy because your father in heaven is holy. That and Holy, holy that means earth. not worldly. Right, not worldly. So all it be, takes to be holy. Apart, like, separate. Like not even know what's on TV, like you're, that's holy as you're like an alien that doesn't touch that stuff. Exactly. Should you avoid people that you think are bad, or do you think that that's life? You got to talk to everybody. I definitely used to. I would shun those people that I didn't agree with, that didn't show up to all the meetings. It was totally unofficial, and I talked to them, but it wasn't somebody that I would feel free to associate with. Hopefully, over the years, I've better or worse changed my tune, and I try to be more open and accepting. Melody, like me, grew up in a brethren group protected from the defilement of watching television and movies. You were raised that like you shouldn't watch like things on movies and stuff that has violence and sex. We and didn't things. have a TV, period. So so has any of that stuck? Do you do you still curate what goes in the eyes and the ears in entertainment no. or not? Oh. No. No, I don't watch <laughs> unless I don't like it. If, if I think it's dumb, right. if I don't it's like bad it. entertainment, I don't watch it. Right. So, and that means I don't watch Christian movies because most of them are terrible. I don't want to hear a morality tale. I don't want to be preached at. Natalie, raised Mormon, was allowed television and movies, but provides insights into Mormon attitudes to people living a specially pious life. They have the term Molly Mormon. So if you're a Molly Mormon, you're a follower of all the rules and to the letter and a good representative of what a Mormon is. So was that used to tease people or praise people? Probably a little bit of both. Because if you were too goody, you know, like, oh, Miss Molly Mormon over there. Right. That's what I sort of thought because it it sounded like that. Yeah. But, But 
you'd probably be like, yeah, I am. How come you're not? You know, mm -hmm. I'm working really hard at this. We were taught that there was no moderation. It was either you were right. single or you were working on marriage. And with alcohol, either you were abstaining from alcohol outside of, of communion or you were probably like a hard drinker, maybe an alcoholic. And I found, I feel that was a self-fulfilling prophecy for a lot of the people that grew up like me. That's interesting. You're 10 and you're working really hard yeah. at proving yourself in a social hierarchy. Yeah. Continuing on about the competitive abstinence from joy thing, Kim, from the same brethren group as me, started me onto the idea that in our group, some of us lived under the tyranny of controlling narcissists while others just didn't. Use the word narcissist yeah. and not just about your dad. In groups like ours it wasn't always the group it was there'd be a couple of male narcissists who kind of took things way off the rails too far i mean i'm yeah. sure you know i'm talking about yeah <laughs> that not everybody was into this just because in, if my dad was all fanatical about something it didn't mean that everybody else cared about it at all that that was like the other part of you know the whole brethren situation that was so interesting is that people were living on different levels of like mm -hmm. uh morality you know like some people did things one way and some people did things a certain way and everyone kind of had their own like place where they they stuck a pin in like their godliness you know and no yeah. one really questioned anyone else's way of doing it unless they did something you know really you know I use the word awful quite lightly but yeah you just kind of were like well you know they they only come to meeting on Sunday morning and they have a tv in their house and they're allowed to dress however they want. And that's fine. That's fine for them. That works for them. But like for us, we have to live by this other standard. you Absolutely. know, and, live other way. and like there was all these different levels of how people practice their Christianity. And it's just like, but why? Why is that OK for some people? But that's not OK for us. Like, There's a several things that are hard to explain about our group to other other church people. Like one of them is, you know, obviously, why don't people just leave? That's a, a complicated one that people yeah. say it's like it's like an abused wife is why we don't leave. Another question. Uh, most churches, as far as I know, aren't competitive like ours. Like in most churches, you can get status in different ways. You can become the youth pastor. You can become the worship team leader or whatever. Yeah. Apart from apart from your dad, um, which we don't, of course, have like pastor pastors, but basically I know what you're saying. When you said that, yeah. when you said that your dad was the pastor of a church, I knew exactly what you meant. And I'm yeah. in a similar position that, well, they would deny that it's a church. They would deny that they had pastors. But the fact of the matter is, you know, my dad was doing a whole lot of the talking. So that makes him something. And yeah. um, he took it pretty seriously. And when it came to the room, there was a not just a double standard, there was a hierarchy of holiness. And so there were the people that had the TV, the people who didn't have it, the people who came out to meeting five times a week, the people who came out once just on Sunday. And so what I tried to convey in podcast episodes is that that the biggest one, I, I like things in words, and the complete refusal to put in words all the expectations on us. Yeah, We don't have like a book that says women can't wear pants to church. But the fact of the matter is women couldn't wear pants to church. That's yeah. real. And no one would admit that it was real right just this weird like unspoken rule that also didn't have wasn't based in anything no you know anything real I think that's like you know I remember when I was in high school is just being like what what is going on here you know like what are we basing all these things off like let me know and I remember I went to like the 
Bible bookstore and I bought like the version of like the New Testament that was like the closest to the original text, whatever. You know, they did a translation of the Bible that was like, this is supposed to be the closest translation to what was actually written. And I just like read it. I was like, I'm just going to read this and like to see. And I could not find anything that said people are supposed to dress a certain way. People can't be gay. People can't drink people can't do this or that like there's not like there's none of that like all these made-up rules were just weird i don't know i don't know where they came from you know that's creepy because like if we look at fundamentalist christianity fundamentalist islam orthodox judaism all of these they all somehow come around to cover up and shut up the women it always gets there at some point Women got a lot worse, didn't you? A lot more expectations on you and a lot less privileges. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, so I'm sure you remember my sister. She would have been quite young. Amy. Honestly, her moving out here was like a big, I definitely like disassociated a lot of like that part of my life. And when she moved out here, it really like opened up that conversation to sort of rehash some of that past. But Amy being like, she was younger than me by quite a lot. So we weren't close when we were kids. We actually didn't even like live together a lot of the time because she would be traveling with my parents and I'd be living with my grandparents or my aunt and uncles. Like we didn't even live under the same roof. Mm-hmm. Like most of the time we weren't close. Um, but in reconnecting with her in, in recent years, I realized that for her, things were a lot different than they were for me. Like my mom was like, okay, well, you're going to be like the kid I get right. You know, like you're the practice one. Yeah. You're going to be the one that I get right. Like, I'm going to just like be so hard on you and try and like force you into this sort of thing. Like she was Drake. So it was like the expectation that she would find someone, you know, and like get married and stay in the church, I think was very high for her. So that all worked out perfectly, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, my mother's very proud of us both. <laughs> <laughs> on, on some level, I'm sure, on, seriously, like on, on some level, she's finding ways to be proud, I bet. I think so. She's coming around in her own weird way. Here's a painful question. I'm not a famous physician, but um, I've played live a lot, and my parents have never seen me perform, and they never will, and that's mm-hmm. their choice. And is that part of your reality, too, that their parents would never come and watch you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe at some point that will happen, and maybe mm-hmm. she'll. But, but my mom, my mom's funny. Like, if you like made her like a a dish and she didn't like it, she'd just be like, "Ugh," you know what she, I mean? Like, she's she kind of from Newfoundland, like isn't she? This. Yeah, <laughs> like she wouldn't just like pretend it was delicious. She'd just be like, "Ah." Well, do, that you know wasn't what, do you know what? Do you know what Alan know? Doyle of Great Big Sea said about Newfoundland? What did he say? <laughs> he said that most people, when the boat arrived, said, no, it's too cold here. We can do better. And they waited and they got off the boat in, in Montreal or Toronto. The people who got off the boat in Newfoundland said, yeah, we can, we can handle this. <laughs> they're kind of like a tougher group of people. And they're, they're very tough. And they're very quick. They're very stripped down. No, nothing fancy. Yeah. Nothing just for. And I, I think that's true. They're very, very blunt and very honest in a good way a lot of the time. Ben and Ed, brethren missionaries excommunicated for falling in love with each other, recall their own experiences of fundamentalist curated childhoods. I definitely was able to watch TV, music, 
uh, movies, but uh, just things like The Simpsons were bad. Yeah, Pokemon might be demons. Harry Potter was considered. Oh, oh, yes. But I, I was I, for Harry Potter. I I was eighteen, so I read them anyway. Um, but I definitely was like cusp of that kind of thinking. So yeah, not enough that it really scarred me. I didn't feel. And again, like Cheryl was saying, it's not like all the churches were filled when you were eighteen with pastors reading Harry Potter and then giving a sermon to explain their problems with a great deal of knowledge of Harry Potter. They were just yeah. for, forbidding Harry Potter with None. no knowledge and no nothing but forbidding it. Something that happened with me is I was raised one way and was told that the world was different. The world, anything went like nothing was offensive. Everyone would talk completely freely, could swear and say whatever they like. And in the church, everything was carefully policed. And in the church, everything had to be edifying. Everything had to be a good role model, a good example. Yes. And I exited the church in the 90s, which meant that all the movies were what the f movies like, what did you just see? There's a movie called WTF in the 90s. And it was like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, Natural Born Killers and The Matrix and Spawn. It was those sorts of movies that we were seeing. Superhero movies hadn't quite hit largely apart from some mm. really bad Batman ones. And apart yep. from that, it was just like you go to the theater and you walk out saying like, I had no idea that I was going to see what I just, I'm, I'm amazed and delighted that I was shown something incredibly <laughs> intense and inappropriate and that kind of thing. And what I've found to my chagrin is that now increasingly TV and movies are attempting to be wholesome and, and educational and aspirational and good role models. And here's, here's a proper view of people of color. Here's a good view of women. Just think about the fact that I feel better because that person across the street is worse than me. Yeah, it's so pharisaical. It's right there <laughs> that example is given, um, basing your own righteousness off of somebody else's apparent wickedness. Yeah, I'm more holy because I'm more easily offended. I'm more sensitive. Mm -hmm. I'm more upset by more things. It's a competitive thing. And so I keep comparing it to the princess and the pea story that uh, we're true Pharisees because we can't sleep on a lot of these mattresses because there's a pea there. We can feel it. You know, you might be able to do it. And, and, and so the idea that being tough is bad. Well, I think the people in the Bible were pretty tough. Yeah. And yet we're wow. acting like that the thing we should be doing is walking around gasping with shock and offense all the time. And how wicked everything is. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. Jesus was walking into prostitutes' houses and mm -hmm. having prostitutes follow him. I mean, this is like basic 101 what Jesus was. So when people talk like that, it's just like, really? When's the last time you read the Bible? Yeah. For real. Not just your favorite verses. Ruth grew up in a brethren assembly in Maine. We had very much differentiated between natural joy and spiritual joy. And I think like the spiritual joy is feeling superior to other people religiously. That's spiritual joy. It was more like the difference between enjoying a Star Trek novel, which is a natural joy, and enjoying reading like exposition by Mr. Darby. But where's by, the real joy coming with the Mr. Darby? It's not coming from Mr. Darby. Sorry to tell you. I, I didn't have any joy in Mr. Darby. No. So <laughs> if you read Mr. Darby and it gave you quote unquote spiritual joy, those spiritual jollies were coming from that because I read Darby when I was probably the same age as you when you read it, like around ten or eleven. I read yeah, I this was Victorian reading stuff. Darby at about ten, right? Yeah, and I could read it. I didn't get a lot out of it. I mean, I, under I understood what was going on, and it was very mm -hmm. clear to me that it. 
was very random stuff that wasn't focused on anything that could be applied in a useful way. It was more right. a response to just sort of meandering Bible discussions that were happening by people who have been dead for a hundred years. Right. But as far as I can see, the joy came from, you know what I did? I could have had fun and I sacrificed it for the joy hating God. I yes. read Darby and I understood it. I was able to do it and I finished what I was reading. So I feel good about myself that I sacrificed the joy and that I did the hard thing. And there's no sort of inherent worth that anybody argues in the Darby itself in, in the book that we were reading. And even with the Bible, that transfers that Very we, much. we would read endless begats and we would. The Chronicles. We used to read First Chronicles aloud yep. during family, um, family Bible time in the evenings. We would take it in turns to read Chronicles, all those jawbreakers. The sons of Ham, Cush and Mizraim, Put and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Reamah and Septika. And the sons of Reamah, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be mighty upon the earth. And Mizraim begat Ludim and Anamim and Lehabim and Naphtuhim and Pathrusim and Kasluhim, of whom came the Philistines, and Kaphthorim. And Canaan begat Zidon his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite also, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemarite, and the Hamathite. The sons of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram, and Uz, and Hull, and Getha, and Meshech. And Arphaxad begat Shelah, and Shelah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. But it was very, very important because we were told it was very, very important because the Lord knew each name. The Lord remembered each person, and each person was important to God. That's why we had to read the book of Chronicles. And some of these names, when you say jawbreakers, some of these names are bizarre mixes of ancient Babylonian and ancient Hebrew. So just to make some up out of my head, it would be like, you know, and Beth Sheel Teal came on, begat, you know, Beth Sheel Teal Shaman and, you know, and, and, you know, and they, and they had a barn and then, you know, Beth Sheel Teal came on, died having five sons and daughters. And then it's like, that's what it is. And we would pretend that, you know, spiritual joy was being had from that. Um, Very the other, much. Very the other much. thing we do, do you recall being a, a child and having the adults read with us these grim prophecies about like killing wives and children and unborn babies and like just incredibly apocalyptic horror movie stuff was being read to us as you know what the lord would have us enjoy and saying how much we enjoyed hearing about people being you know boiled in their own vomit or something behold here is my daughter a maiden and his concubine them i will bring out now and humble ye them and do with them what seemeth good unto you but unto this man do not so vile a thing but the men would not hearken to him. So the man took his concubine and brought her forth unto them. And they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning. And when the day began to spring, they let her go. Then came the woman in the dawning of the day and fell down at the door of the man's house where her Lord was, till it was light. And her Lord rose up in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way. And behold, the woman, his concubine, was fallen down at the door of the house and her hands were upon the threshold. And he said unto her, Up, and let us be going. But none answered. Then the man took her up upon an ass, and the man rose up, 
and get him unto his place. And when he was come into his house, he took a knife and laid hold on his concubine and divided her together with her bones into twelve pieces and sent her into all the coasts of Israel. And it was so that all that saw it said, There was no such deed done nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider of it. Yes. Oh, and lots of cutting off of foreskins. Lots yes. of it. Yes. Well, a mountain, a of, mountain of 300 foreskins, I believe. Mountains and, of foreskins. Yeah, what and a I, bloody husband you are to me. And I think that the, the joy that we got out of that is it's funny because, you know, dicks, foreskins. But um, Sorry. generally, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that I really question. Yeah, that somebody decided that, you know, it's Sunday. There's, there's, no, there's no playing Monopoly today. And, and put away the right. Hardy Boys no, and Nancy no. Drew books. We're going yeah. to read about the 300 foreskins and or we're going to read about, you know, the Lord will bring brimstone down and kill all of the women and the unborn children of the or Midianites. The uh, yeah. And they'll, they'll die on a dung heap. Um, and the idea that this was something we were supposed to enjoy. What do you think about the fact that this was served to us as more enjoyable than Star Trek? I'm like remembering the things that we were exposed to in the Bible. And I'm looking at my children who are five and six and saying, I wouldn't let them get anywhere near this stuff. And it's not I'm just, just censorship. They were, they weren't just saying like, yeah, you have to listen. They were, they were saying like, this is the good stuff. Like this is from God. Yeah. Like, listen, like this is the word of God. Well, because it was the Bible, it was the word of God. And you took it and you were to consume that or read that in a book or a movie. Well, of course we didn't watch movies at the time but if you were to be exposed to any of that anywhere about the bible it would be shocking it would be horrifying it would be oh absolutely uh anathema you Mm -hmm. you simply would not be able to to get anywhere near that but because it was the word of god i use that loosely because i believe that the word of god is christ himself and not Mm -hmm. the, the written well isn't there a book that says that somewhere Oh, I think there is. I think it's called the Bible. Yes. That kind of says that. And and there's a whole lot of the Bible that if you quote it Christians, it just makes them mad because they're not going to do it. Yeah. Especially the especially the part about in Matthew, all the stuff about don't pray publicly and make a show of any of your piety. Oh, yeah. And there's, you know, we all know people who are Instagram, you know, uh, women with pictures of themselves in their bathing suits or pictures of how many kids they had and their dog and their beautiful house. And they'll put verses all over it um, to sort of make it not braggy. Um, and they will take pictures of how happy they are to go to church. And I- I've never seen someone use the word humble sincerely, I'm afraid. I'm humbled no. to admit that, that I've never used the word humbled in an in a acceptable way myself. Tim, raised first Jehovah's Witness and then Grace Brethren, agrees with me about the competitive nature of piety in some Christian groups. Yeah, fornication is a sin, right? Yeah. <laughs> and if you have sex with a girl that you're not married to, well, you just lost a bunch of points. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? so, well, uh, and you just said points. One of the things that I kind of, I see it in terms of, I think it's a competition. I Like in a lot of Christian circles, I think there are what I would call a holiness contest going on and that's i'm not imagining that am i no uh no i mean because at least i mean i've done it myself you know i've done it myself well brother you you're sinning (laughs) i mean you know it's fast forward though i'm remarried now i've been i've been married to wendy for over 18 years man and and i love her with i love her dearly man 
and, and uh, you know, um, I, I I know some Christians that I I guess I actually had respect for that because I got divorced and remarried, they would they would oh they love me and they care about me and you know what they'd be happy to ask me to come help them move their furniture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know what? Well, now you really wouldn't be able to be in a teaching position, yeah. right? Yeah, a status <laughs> so, thing. Yeah, and so I, I got a you know great big F you to those guys, really. right? I don't watch movies to be edified. I can go back to church for that. I insist that my entertainment be junk food if it's gonna be entertainment, <laughs> otherwise, I don't want it. <laughs> a lot of TV has grown up, and I don't want to. It's about oh. families and stuff, and I don't have one. and it's not funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also, I mean, the sitcom has been worn out so thoroughly now that I think Seinfeld and Friends kind of hit it. And then now everyone's looking back saying how problematic they are and how they can't even watch them because they're so offensive, you know. And I, and I, didn't, sad. I didn't watch the last episode or the last season of Friends anyway. I got tired of sitcoms back when they were a thing. I got tired of them. And you know, things like community would come along where they'd really mess with the conventions in a very meta way. And for a while, that's fun, but you get tired of that too. Did you have a TV ever? Growing up, never. Oh my gosh. Do you have any memories of being at someone's house or someplace like a shopping mall where you could watch it? Do you remember that? (laughs) Yes. Yes, I do. I loved to come up and visit my grandmother because I could watch Star Trek at my grandmother's. Mm-hmm. And that's how I that's how I became a Trekkie was by watching Star Trek at my grandmother's. Because we could watch next gen. Yeah, I was a next yeah. gen kid. Yeah. And then I remember my mom. Okay, so this is wicked. I'm totally <laughs> I'm totally telling on my mom here, but this is the right podcast to talk about wicked things on. So my mom had like this little TV. It was like a very, very, very small television. And she kept it over by her chair. She had it all covered up. She had it hidden from my dad and hidden from everybody. And she used to watch Deep Space Nine on that television when it first came out. And what she would do is she would watch Deep Space Nine and she would record it. She had her tape player. She had her Memorex cassettes and she would take and record the episodes just the sound so just the sound so what we did was we would listen to just the sound we didn't have any visuals we had just the sound so we it could be a little muffled it could be a little scratchy in places you remember cassette what cassettes um, sound quality was like but so that was my introduction to deep space nine but we would get the star trek magazine when it came out every month so that we could have the visuals we could have the synopsis of the episodes and we could have the pictures so we would put those together and you know now that i'm thinking about it that was excellent training ground for a writer because when you don't have all this visual stimuli you have to really use the muscle of your imagination a lot more than i think kids do today when the media for kids the movies the shows are just so brightly richly visual we didn't have that growing up so we had to use our imaginations and i think that was very good training ground for a writer you've made a fantastic argument for depriving children of television um i have (laughs) 
my children get television because I didn't have it and I want them to have it. So Right. And I, I didn't have television for much of my childhood. Right. And so I was reading the novelizations and little yes, what, what you just told me, me reminded me of my cousins had a TV and the parents turned a bit of a blind eye that if you happen to be visiting your cousins and they're watching MacGyver or the A-Team, then they supposed it was okay as long as it didn't happen too often. But what I was doing yes. was I had my portable tape recorder, as you say, and I was making like a TV theme songs uh, tape. And so I my wanted- My brother I, did that. I was hunting for, I needed the theme from Knight Rider. I needed the theme from the A-Team, needed the theme from Magnum PI. And this was about putting a mono tape recorder in front of the mono speaker of the TV that didn't have cable, that was getting this snowy picture and making these very terrible recordings. So what happens here is it makes it magic. I almost um, expected that what you were going to say, that all this... uh, hiding of the TV and putting a towel over the TV so no one could see it and the tape recording of it and secretly listening to it and getting the magazines, you know, the TV. I thought you were going to say that this was great training ground for all sorts of sin, all sorts of surreptitious sneaking things, hiding alcohol, hiding drugs, hiding cigarettes, you know, hiding extramarital affairs. That's where I thought you might, do you think it also might teach that kind of thing? It definitely created a culture of secrets. There was this culture that you, you don't touch, you don't taste, you don't listen to, you don't download, you don't watch. Like you have to stay yes. pure. Yes, yes, yes. I just literally, we had a sermon at family camp two weeks ago about this. So modern day right now uh, that we had a guest speaker from um, California and he was talking about, he was, he gave his testimony and he had a non-pure testimony. He didn't become a believer till he was in his early 20s. He lived life. He was an addict, alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever. Like well, he, These are the only he, kinds of people who are allowed to tell their testimonies as far as I don't know. No one wants to hear mine. <laughs> we have a lot. Because the other story is, well, I got saved when I was six. <laughs> I got saved when I was three and a half and it didn't work out very well. And now I'm miserable. That, that's, they don't let me tell that story. <laughs> So the sermon, um, the guy's telling his testimony, going through all the, you know, the drinking and drugs and moving from L.A. to Phoenix and back and forth or whatever, being homeless, all the things. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't want you to think that I'm glorifying, you know, this kind of life. You know, and he asked how many people had become believers when they were young and quite a few because we're brethren still. But he was following the O-Taste and see that cocaine's a hell of a drug life choice. Yes. Yes, exactly. But his point of that was innocence is not a bad thing. It is a gift. Hang on to it. And so he was, you know, promoting the idea that we maybe sometimes do admire these people with the rough life who then have a real, you know, 180 when they find Jesus. But he was talking about, you know, like, it is good if you've never, if you've never had a drink, if you've never done a drug, if you've never slept with anybody, if you've never done this, this and this. Um, And I'm sure he had reasons and I, I can't remember what they are. I guess it's because it's because you get all of that extra time. That's what it was. You get all of that extra time to live for Jesus in the early part of your life. And this does boil down to 
I forget recently someone said that you always ask people for advice because you want to be told how to be you and all they can tell you is how to be them. You want to learn what mistakes you're likely to make, they'll tell you the mistakes that they made and that's not the same thing. Right. Yes, that's every testimony. Yeah, it's not, they're interesting as people's life stories are interesting. They're not helpful in your own walk. But the people who are sitting in a room like that, I would argue, require a different sermon. They require a sermon of how fundamentalist upbringing can go very wrong. Even if you follow all the rules, it can turn out terribly. And they I can preach that sermon. Well, I, I do I have a whole podcast and everything, but um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I'm, I've definitely been forbidden to speak in churches about yeah. the, this. Uh, I'm also not supposed to warn young people that a very common effect of going away to Bible school is losing all faith in the Bible. Uh, that's just a reality. And, and I think that it's irresponsible not to warn them so that they know that if you love the Bible now and you don't know a lot about it, you need to know that when people go to Bible school, a lot of what happens is they may lose their faith. And I'm not saying good. I think that's actually bad. I think that school shouldn't make you lose your faith. So why do you think that happens? Um, The best I've come up with, because I mean, I've neither 100% lost my faith in the Bible, nor have I gone to Bible school. My, My situation is that I memorized chunks of the Bible before I was old enough to read and can still quote a bunch of it. And the people who go to Bible school often go to Bible school and don't know a lot about it. And in fact, many of these people I'm speaking with who go to Bible school have never read the Bible. Um, So it's something that I do, that whenever someone tells me that they're going to Bible school or that they've been or that they are at Bible school, I always ask them, you know, when was the first time that you read the whole Bible? And I think I've met like one person who, who read the whole Bible. The other ones are losing their faith in it without reading it. So that's an interesting question, isn't it? So yeah. I think I think that what most people call Christianity is not mostly the Bible, and that how Christians interact with the Bible is nothing that anyone who wrote the Bible would recognize for a moment. Besides killing people with swords, I'm most highly trained in how to read ancient texts that may not have been written in English, or not modern English, certainly. And there's a way to do it. It's not easy. And I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to read the Bible like a scholar, But that's what happens when you go to Bible school. They start to talk a little bit more like scholars and scholars study things like bugs and butterflies and frogs, like they dissect them and that. And sometimes the life leaves it, hopefully with the bugs and the frogs, the life leaves it before they (laughs) dissect it. But the Bible is supposed to be living and you're supposed to interact with it. And so I guess what I've come up with, the best I can think of, is you have this worldview it's, it's simple. It's, it's very carefully been isolated and hasn't touched a lot of facts and a lot of opinions and a lot of experiences and, and the world as a whole. And just sort of being exposed to things that tell you that you're going to need to tear down your entire foundational system of beliefs and build it back up again. Most people just say, fuck it and walk away because it's too much. Like they didn't really build their own faith foundation. Other people built it and yes. they don't. They, they get a bit of a sense of how hard it is to do what people like us are doing, uh, that you have your faith foundations shattered by not even like a person or a movie or Richard Dawkins or something, but just reality shatters yep. it and says, this is yep. not very real. And tr- then trying to deal. Like I do talk to people who are, you know, what to think about evolution, what to think about all these things. And I'm not going to pretend that it's simple, you know, close your ears and open your eyes to the Bible. Like, I don't think that works. Right. 
Yeah. And I don't think it has to work. I mean, God wrote the Bible. God is the creator. He made science. He made all the things. It all makes sense if you, well, it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't. Most of the universe makes sense. Like well, it doesn't make sense. make sense to me. Okay. I, I'm not going to try to understand it. I'm not going to try to see, to figure out how evolution and God's creation work together to form the world. Oh uh, yeah. I wasn't saying that. I was just saying that if you look at reality, like the molecular universe, energy and matter, yes, it makes sense. Like it always yes. makes sense. Yeah. Science, science yeah. needs it to make sense. Yes. Yes, I totally agree with that. I have a an acquaintance from the Brethren, of course, who, like, back when Facebook was new, would get in fights with people, like, trying to prove the existence of God and yeah. God's creation. I'm like, if you can prove the existence of God, then it's not God, in my opinion. Yeah, if a lot of what we're assuming is that God is more important than, like, the Prime Minister of britain and if he is more important he must be harder to get a handle on harder to nail down and and get all the relevant facts understand the whole thing and we don't do very well with well doesn't COVID is a i think a object lesson and how little we know and how little we can handle things and be sensible and anybody who tells me oh it's very simple just put your mask on and get double vaccinated and shut your mouth and believe, believe everything the cdc says and believe the president that's crap and when someone says, well, it's all a lie and none of it is true and listen to the guy, it's like, no, I don't believe, I don't believe any of it anymore. And I, I, you know, so if people want to know what happened to my religion. It's what happened to everybody about science in the last couple of years that there's science and there's science and there's also scientists and politics and we don't, we can't trust people and they don't know what's going on. And and if you go and talk to an economist, they have all the answers, but then talk to a nutritionist and follow that with an anthropologist yeah. and then a philosopher, yeah. they all have all the answers and they all yeah. disagree. And yeah. they like that. And, and that's what scholars are like. And that's what intellectuals are like. They like there to be a big discussion, a big argument. Yes. And I like that, but that's not welcome generally in Christian circles. No, no. Uh, you have to have pat answers. You do. And you, p- people basically say that if you can't give me a dumbed down answer, then you, the faith is itself stupid. And that's exactly wrong. Yeah. Um, I think it disrupted what could have been very normal human interactions with all the people very I went much. to school with and all my relatives who weren't Plymouth Brethren. So that's very big. Much. Another one that's almost so subtle you don't notice is mm-hmm. I think culture is very important. And I don't think that yes. the meeting was sufficient to call... <laughs> my culture. I mean, I call it my birth culture, but in another as a subculture. Yes, that I agree. And so what that means is, so the people I went to school with were going through their normal rites of passage and the the things they wanted to do and the things they were happy they got to do. And the, the half that stuff we were just cut off from. So we couldn't, walk shoulder to shoulder with regular people so we're like astronauts so some examples of that might be like participating in like i can remember vividly wanting to participate in ballet and Mm -hmm. not being permitted to take ballet classes i can remember wanting to participate in maybe girl scouts or any of those organizations i can remember wanting to participate in those things I was homeschooled 
from fourth grade all the way through high school, that was very, very, very isolating. Mm-hmm. When I expressed a desire to go to high school so that I could like mingle with other kids, my parents were terrified by the idea. I was raised with what I call subtractive holiness or righteousness, mm-hmm. that it's all about removing the things from your life. And you end up with almost no life left for you to live. And I think this really encourages gossip. Gossip was an enormous thing in my group. And I think it's because people simply didn't have enough of a life. And so what, what are they going to do? Well, they'll speculate that someone else might be doing things because they're not doing anything. Something funny about the swearing thing. Yeah. I grew up, you know, like being punished. And, you know, I, I'm in Spanish. I never use bad language. But something interesting is I don't get it the same power when I say what a yeah. for me is like. Uh, when I, people say, I was yeah. like, oh, that doesn't sound like funny. You weren't trained by your mother power. that that's the that's worst word power. in the world. No. But if I use the word in, in Spanish, yes. Joder. Joder. Or, means nothing to Mike. But it means joder no significa nada. No, I, my, Spanish, uh, my Spanish swearing is limited to maybe hijo de puta or something. Oh. <laughs> That's a very strong one. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Don't I don't know milder that. ones. Yeah. And so, and you don't, you don't feel it. And so, no. for me, it's like you know, totally miss the swearing Spanish word. Never we use it, but now I'm kind of you know like, oh, that sounds funny when people say those very strong words. We're watching a a TV show, yeah. and those guys use the word f-ing every single moment. I teach high school. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Troy, not raised in a religious home, explains a very different attitude to swearing. But did you grow up in a a, a home where swearing was only done very calculatedly or was it extremely unthinking? Oh, it was extremely unthinking. I, growing up, I mean, I know, I grew up with people that swearing was pretty much every third or fourth word. Yeah. And in many cases just didn't, it just didn't matter. Like it was just like, you can't do that because you're not old enough was pretty much a certain yep. sort of thing. It's like adults are allowed to do that. But when they do it, they could freely say it all the time and, and you'd hear it constantly. And So your family, if you were a kid and your parents heard you swear, it wasn't that it's wrong to swear. It was that you're just a kid so you shouldn't swear? Yeah, pretty much. Like it would, you'd be punished. I mean, there would be like it is definitely, you know, like a a moral failing, but it is one of those things that it's like it's only a moral failing for a child mm-hmm. almost like um you are not old enough to drive yet yeah. you know like you haven't got the license to swear because you're not using it properly mm-hmm. but once you are then it's fine you could swear all you like and i know when i reached about 16 i could swear and it there wouldn't even be a thought like no one would even blink Except for around, like, say, my grandparents. Like, there is definitely, like, an elder. Mm-hmm. There are certain lines. But around my parents, no, I probably started swearing when I was 16. Didn't matter anymore. Like, it just, it was yeah. like, whatever. It's just a word. I never felt more like a Bre- Plymouth Brethren Christian than when I was across the road at Curry's house. You know Curry. Yeah. And um, I don't know how old he would have been. Maybe 13 years old. And he walked in front of the TV. And his mom, unthinkingly, said, Curry, move your ass. 
And I was shocked because people swearing at their kids. I mean, my parents beat me with a wooden paddle with the Bible on it, but they would never swear at me or, in fact, insult me or call me names. That wasn't what it was. It was a physical correction. But Curry's mom would be, move your ass. So then Curry started, you know, dancing around. And uh, which that shows just how traumatized he wasn't by his mom swearing at him. And she thought it was funny, but wouldn't show a smile or try not to. And, and it was... It was in a weird way, a wholesome little mother-son joking around engagement that, to me, sounded, is this abusive or is it morally corrupting of children? Or and it wasn't. It was just them goofing around. So this idea of purity and purity culture was gone into, uh, on a personal yeah. level, uh, do you work to keep, like, forget about what religious judgments, but do you work to keep from maxing yourself out on too much doom scrolling on Twitter or too much nudity and violence in movies? Like, do you gatekeep a little bit? I do. I deleted my Twitter earlier this year. Because... Wish I, I wish I would do that. <laughs> How would I know which celebrities have died without Twitter? Well, right. Emily from a fundamentalist charismatic group mentioned purity culture being part of her upbringing, pausing for a moment to parent in French. You're in the washing machine, you're clean all the time, and eventually your big hope is that one day there'll be nothing left but a little bit of drier lint of you, and you've never been dirty. But you've also mm -hmm. never, been, never been a sweater. Does that sound, yeah. that sound like uh, <laughs> some people live that way? Yeah, well, it's that culture of avoidance, right? It, it, the whole purity culture thing, for example, is a fantastic... Um, oh, sorry, one second. Wait, what's up, Twitter? Emily is an atheist, substituting other approaches to fixing the world for the fundamentalism in which she was raised, but has a home in which her husband and kids are free to be as Christian as they like. She is a vegetarian, but they can eat meat if they want to. She is French, but they can converse with her in French or English. She has a lot of thoughts about purity culture, as heard in previous episodes. Yeah, exactly. I think I was going to draw a parallel between that and the whole purity culture aspect. You know, that you're, you're supposed to remain absolutely sexually pure. Not Which means deactivated, not functioning off. Exactly. But then, so you've got this expectation. And of course, outwardly, if you're being raised in that culture, and you know, the expectations, you're going to put out all the signs that you're meeting those expectations. But then what's happening on the inside, and what's happening in secret, is of course, that you're failing to meet those expectations, and the, the people around you are failing to meet those expectations. And then all of the bad stuff that's happening isn't being talked about. If you're a victim of sexual assault, you're not going to discuss that with anyone because you know that within the culture that in which you dwell, as a victim of sexual assault, you're going to be blamed for having pulled that person into temptation and prompting them to assault you. So um, what I learned from all that is faking things. And hiding things is not the same as those struggles not actually going on. So you're, you're kind of strengthening the idea that uh, when you forbid things, um, it makes people liars or makes people hide the stuff instead of dealing with it. Yeah. If you're going to put out um, 
a culture of secrecy and shame and faking, the stuff is not going to stop happening. It's just going to happen behind closed doors. And then it's not going to get addressed. Whereas if you just live out in the open and you're saying, okay, you know, I'm struggling with X issue. Well, at least it's going to be talked about and dealt with and you'll be able to get counseling and Mm -hmm. you'll be held accountable. But there's zero accountability when you're just hiding things away and forbidding things. Any number of things can go on in secret and nobody is going to hold perpetrators accountable and victims are not going to get the help that they need and the support that they need either. And and so we know that throughout all of human history, sexual assault and molestation have been problems. And yet in church cultures, there's something specially problematic about those because of this secrecy. Mm -hmm. I agree. When I first came out as a survivor, a survivor of um, a sexual assault and rape in the meeting. I wish I were the only person that experienced this and I'm not. The responses that I got were more devastating than the actual abuse mm-hmm. because it all made me feel that I was unlovable to God and I would never be wanted by a Christian man because I had been, you know, sexually defiled. The message was I must have somehow brought it on myself. So I, I remember it being in discussion whether or not I could break bread. Like that was it's amazingly bad. traumatic that it would be in question that I could break bread because I had been raped. Because in other no words, they were, they were going to punish you and shun you yeah. for being wicked because yeah. that someone hurt you. They did. They did that. And did, they, did they put you out? They did not. There was actually a brother's meeting about it and they decided not to, but just knowing that they had had that conversation, uh, it, it was just, <sighs> of course, and this is 20 years ago. And you're 18 years old at a very vulnerable time in, you know, any teenager's development. This thing where when I was a young guy and I was noticing the girls that I thought were physically attractive she would give me an assessment of whether they were nace or not. And nace basically meant, did she trust them not to have sex with us? And were they being too attractive or like, basically did they meet her approval? So I noticed that all the girls she was aiming us guys at were much less attractive and confident and so on. And any of the girls, like for instance, Marge Dodds, uh, not as nice because they were too confident and they were too much of a force to be reckoned with as far as a physically attractive person. Women like having to hide your attractiveness in false modesty and your intelligence and your intelligence and your, yeah, intelligence and any, it, it was very much enforced by some of the women within this group that you needed to know your place. And they made sure that you stayed in your place almost more than the men did. The, the women spent much more time making sure and that that women, um, you, you could never act with any kind of confidence because that showed that you had some power because your, your personality was not modest. That's, that's the thing. Like it was more in a person could, could dress the, two women could dress the exact same way And if one had a more dominant personality, they would be considered um, the dirty one. Mm -hmm. And the other one would be like, oh, well, you know, I guess that they were the kind of the watchdogs of of the cult and and making sure that 
and, and women did that a lot to sort of uphold the the system. Uh, like it was always thought of as you know this is a very patriarchal group uh, with a lot of you know sexism and stuff like that. But there were um, there were women women were indoctrinated into it and were upholding the patriarchy. It could not have been upheld if they hadn't been upholding Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So a lot of women would go around, older women watching younger women's behavior, their dress, their you know that kind of thing, um, and and gossip was a huge uh, way that these um, women would control people's behavior are you suggesting that gossip was a thing in the plymouth brethren <laughs> gossip was like the t you know if you didn't have a tv you didn't have entertainment gossip was a thing so you're saying they um, weaponized it that basically they'd aim it at you absolutely absolutely it was a, it was another way to control people if you could talk um you know talk down about somebody um and shame them it was a way to shame people mm -hmm. into behaving in a way that you um thought they should be I have to think, if you keep using the term patriarchy to describe a controlling system in which women have a great deal to say and in which they play a central, essential role in enforcing the system's expectations, you just might need a new name for that. Yeah, we were segregated on Sundays, but on youth nights, everybody mixed together. You know, p putting youth together, it always came with all the rules mm -hmm. of boys and girls hanging out together. So you were supposed to put aside an hour or two to do something with your family, to do a little lesson and then a little activity. But I can remember one of them specifically was sit down. We're going through this pamphlet and no dating before 16. And if you do date after that, it's group dates uh, with other members. And then there's the list of things you cannot do. And I remember one of them standing up like there's absolutely no petting and being confused. Like, okay, well, what's petting? Like, right. But then those sort of restrictions you saw a lot of people turn 18 and marry the boy that they've been dating in the church so a lot of really young marriages that inevitably ended in divorce mm -hmm. um, because people did, weren't allowed to have those experiences to meet other people to date for fun it was dating to find a husband they tried to delay that with um missions right. so young men went on missions at 18 and then women you had to wait till you were 21 so a dumb there was question no overlap. why do you think the marriages wouldn't last because i don't think they were based on compatibility as as individuals it was based on our compatibility because we go to the same church and we had the same belief system mm -hmm. and that was enough and i think the harm of the no dating, no petting group dates is that everybody's really eager to find out what it is they're not allowed to do. So in order mm -hmm. to do that, you have to get married. Right. So if somebody says no petting, suddenly you have a burning desire to find out what that's all about. You never yeah, thought so about it. I guess it. I better get married and then yeah. I'll know all about it. Right. Um, because I mean, I, I know some people who are, are from societies who had arranged marriages. And I'm always surprised to hear that a lot of them claim that arranged marriages, which as far as we're concerned, seem really random and unplanned a lot of the time. Uh, a lot of times that they seem to work as often as Western marriages. Mm. It's, the, it's the expectation of what you go into it with. And the Western expectation is once the thrill is gone, you're gone. And right. their expectation is my parents and community 
thought we should get married. And so we did. So we're trying to make it work and, and being happy or this being my very best friend in the whole world, or this being the most profound human connection possible as seen in movies doesn't seem to be a part of it. And that seems to make it less pressure on it or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not advocating. I'm just, I, you know, I was wondering when talking to people interesting. and it doesn't always work. I mean, a, a big way that it doesn't work is once you have somebody who's let's say born or, or certainly raised in North America and they watch those movies and they're looking for that in their arranged marriage, and not getting it. Usually they're gone. Right. I wanted to wear tank tops. I wasn't allowed to wear tank tops. Right. Um, so no, I guess that bothered me a little bit. People have, but I understood it. I I got it. In what sense? Well, that you don't need to be flashing your skin around when you're in the church. You know, why right. are we here? What are we here for? What are we doing? Well, you were allowed to wear tank tops if you weren't in the church. No, no, you were not. No. No. Okay. People... I guess it depended on how strict your parents were about it. As my dad got more strict, and as I kind of reached ten or twelve, my father started forbidding me being alone in a room with girls of any kind yeah my sister my cousin if my cousins came over and I was just in a room talking to my girl cousin my dad or my mom would interpose themselves they'd Mm -hmm. be in the room to make sure that there was nothing that was going on and that was so bizarre yeah purity culture was almost this continual suspicion that sexual activity was going on all the time and you know to be honest in my way when someone has a prolonged discussion of purity culture Every time someone says the word purity, I think the word vagina. So to me, it's <laughs> vagina culture. And and just try that a bit. Like, honestly, it's like... It book, makes book. sense, doesn't it? Anything related to sexuality, you tip your foot in that, you're done too. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're permanently ruined. A lot of um, girls spoke about purity culture in particular. Absolutely. I Kiss Dating Goodbye was popular when I grew up. Um, a lot of people mentioned that very book. Fortunately, the author of that book has completely denounced it and re- repented of that. So we're very aware of, of that. Yeah. But it still has its influences. And people didn't don't know that probably. And they still look at it as a valid theory. It's really bad stuff. And it's pure I gave so many religion. books for young people in my church. I used to buy them, the whole box, and give to people. You know, I don't know. So many things about <laughs> the way it's. I saw the, the Christian life, and 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 I remember, uh, you know, people getting the copy of this book and reading, and they they were like feeling bad about their dating life and guilt, how guilt, they guilt. guilt. Yeah. It's a culture yeah. of you know promoting guilt and people feeling bad about their life, and you know, like feeling then they need to be punished for their choices and everything. And I was like. Now then I, I, you know, I follow the author of this book. Actually had a culture that was legalistic and rule-based. And if you didn't get things right, you got pushed out. And that hurt a lot of people. And that was kind of the, the beginning point of me saying what, what I thought was well-intentioned, what I thought was about grace is actually producing fruit in people's lives that is, that is not good. And the way he see you know, his freedom now saying I'm free about that culture and the way he's like this deconstruction, all these religious ideas. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I feel so bad and I used to promote this book. It's totally idolatrizing marriage between a man and a woman is more important than somebody's 
knowing somebody intimately personally it's saying that the best thing you can do as a christian is get married to the opposite sex yeah and to do that without any type of emotional attachment to the person or uh, physical intimacy at all until after the wedding night he's actually recanted he's, he's on youtube saying how much he he he's sad that he wrote that book and had a an effect on a generation of Christian people. Well, he should write a sequel and fix it. I think he might have. <laughs> Once again, when one focuses on the result of a book you wrote rather than doubling down on whether or not an argument could be made by it with cherry-picked Bible verses, if one is Joshua Harris, one might feel one did harm rather than being helpful. The am I doing harm versus do I have a carefully constructed position standards result in very different foci, just like judging political parties on their achieved results rather than their election claims does. If our focus is optics, optics how our optics. performance looks and is being received, rather than what our actions have achieved or resulted in, including harm, again, that's an entirely different thing. But yeah, like Emily was talking about how it meant that when people liked each other and started what we would call dating, and it didn't turn out they experienced it as if it were a broken off engagement. Yeah. Yeah. The, the intensity um, around when people even just started, I just remember him sings and someone, the guy would, that would be the, the hottest dating event would be at these Bible conferences. Cause you'd get a bigger pool of, of the opposite sex. So people would be coming from Montreal or, or be in Montreal and, so then there'd be this lineup, kind of the girls would be all prissied up so they'd all go get looking better after gospel meeting because it was going to be the hymn sing. And, you know, that was when you might get approached to sit with a guy and you might hold the same hymn book as him. Oh, my God, your hands might actually touch. And that when people, all of the older women particularly were watching this and watching to see who was, you know, it was like a reality show, um, a dating reality show. And and it would be literally like, not, oh, well, he's asked her, maybe he could ask someone different the next night. It was like, he asked her, they're considering um, whether, you know, this is going to be viable for, for a serious event. Um, like my experience of these events was that the, the generation before had very overtly found husbands and wives by doing this. And that our generation, the girls especially, were by and large buying out of it so if they really liked a guy maybe but but mostly when people showed up it was we're joking about it because we weren't really going to do that anymore and it sometimes happened and we go look at that couple like they're doing it. but generally speaking girls sat with girls to avoid having to sit with guys uh, guys had no intention of asking girls was that your, your yeah it kind of dwindled i mean i think there was a peak of it that was still going on and and um i think in in the states in some pockets it was definitely still going on in the same way. And there would be conferences where it was, you know, you know, the Idaho potato farmers, they were pretty yeah. serious to get a hand mm -hmm. in marriage and they weren't, you know, so, so there would be certain conferences, Bible conferences where girls would go, especially if they were still single and it was kind of time is ticking. You're 18 now. So they'd go to this conference where the Idaho potato farmers we'll be were looking for their sweet potato. because they were looking for their, their sweet potato and that she could be 14, but you know, 18 would be like the top end. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of joking, but I, I don't think do, I really do am. Do you remember um, when people like Chris and Erica started hanging out with us, that they were cousins of Doug. So they weren't really very brethren. 
And they said, they, they took me aside and said, like, why is everyone joking and talking about marrying people? Like, you guys are like 20. Why are they? And they didn't understand that there was no dating on offer. So if you were interested in somebody, you would start courting them. And there would be there'd be some expectation that you could talk about marriage at some point in the future. Yeah, it's funny that because that, that's true. I remember that. But I also remember it being one of the shticks that um, yeah. cult leader Mark used. Did a Plymouth Brethren guy ever try to flirt with you and it was just so bad? Oh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't flirting. It was like, here's a gold watch. Do you want to get married? Like that was, that was. Yeah, that's not really flirting. (laughs) We were, you know, it wasn't really flirting because dating wasn't really done. It was just like, oh, is this a suitor for me? I remember Doug buying a package of dates and going around to girls and saying, would you like a date? Ben and Ed apply pretty high Christian purity standards to their Christian same-sex marriage. We are now committed only to each other, just like Christ is to the church. We don't ever allow anyone else into our relationship. We don't um, pursue anything outside of each other, including pornography. That's just not allowed. <laughs> but yet I, I know that <laughs> in the elders that I was working with that kicked me out, they, they were close enough to me to tell me that they did struggle weekly with pornography. And each other's elders knew about it. But because they fall and repent, and their minds fall and repent, that keeps them able to be elders. I've also caught a number of people who uh, are confessing to the sin of pornography. And it strikes me, it's an awfully manly sin. If you're going to pick one, if that you have to confess, uh, it's not like alcoholism or something. Yeah. And I got this very strong sense right from that early age. I was probably 10 maybe 11, um, that I was dirty somehow. There was something about me that was dirty, but mm-hmm. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then as I got a bit older, I realized what was dirty. And that was anything that was developing that was no longer little girl. It was like mm-hmm. the female puberty, like anything was that was dirty. And then mom reinforced that, obviously, because she was upholding the patriarchy. So when I would dress in anything that that might have looked you know, attractive in some way. And I'm and I'm saying still very conservative. She would say it looked, you know, oh, that looks awful. You know, you have to, you have to, you know, go change. That looks awful. How I remember it is slightly different. I remember repeatedly that any time you spiffed up, so you looked slightly more glamorous than usual, she would say, Debbie, you look awful. And I could, I looked at the two of you and I realized that in mom's head, she's saying you look awful and what she means is you look too appealing. You're too attractive. Mm. You're, you're, you're being too you're being too glamorous. And on your face, what I could read was you thought she meant that you looked awful, as in you can't carry that look off. Mm-hmm. You, you, it, you don't look good that way. And it was in fact the very opposite of what was happening. Was she was she was off put by your appeal? Yeah, and it's funny because that's another blank in my head. I mean, I I, I recognize the phrasing. And I can't remember any of the situations. And I do remember it happened often. And I know that when I would go shopping, she would come with me when I'd mm-hmm. go clothes shopping. And I remember there being a lot of of me being incredibly offended by her reaction when I'd come out of the change room and show her something. Because I was looking, I would try something on and, and look for her approval. And I would get something very confusing back. And and I couldn't quite figure out, I, I think I was more clear on on what dad was all about and that mm. he was uncomfortable with me hitting puberty and, and being, you know, becoming a woman. And with mom, I couldn't figure out what it was because it was very, it was twisted almost behind the scenes, uh, a weird, you know, but it was, she was really supporting the the whole and upholding the whole 
idea that you couldn't look in any way that would be sexual at all. And even in the context of the meeting, you were not one of the people who was pushing the boundaries of sexiness and risque outfits. No, because I was very uncomfortable in my body. So some of my friends said that it placed a really unhealthy focus upon virginity and purity. Yeah. What do you think is the harm of that? Well, you're fighting against teenagers, you know, who have all the hormones on their side. Right. And you're just, anything that is going to happen then is going to be done in secrecy mm-hmm. and rushed. From my experience, what I observed was that people just rushed into things because to explore it would have been wrong. Right. To find out if you were compatible in those ways would have been wrong. So I know several people um, who got into marriages that turned out to be abusive because you can't you don't even live together you barely date before you're married so same yeah so I think our both our developments uh, were kind of stunted Mm -hmm. as well as our just we had yeah very psychological um, weirdness stunted is a word I use a lot I feel like that I feel like um, what was done to us was that there was a natural growth or developmental process that was supposed to happen. And a whole lot of what happened with the church was to try to make sure you didn't develop in a healthy direction and make you feel a bit awkward about normal growing. Yeah. And it, it almost meant you, you were like, you know, you hear about a lot of stuff in the Catholic church with abuse and, you know, pre- priests uh, abusing little boys and stuff like that. And that, and I can see it as like, when you ask a human being, to cut themselves into pieces and to deny certain pieces that are part of their body and to pretend they don't exist or to even look at them and say, that's a very bad piece. Mm-hmm. So you should hide that, make sure no one knows you have that. Then you're walking around basically in a fragmented state. And and then how are you supposed to ever um, be a whole person with with balance and a sense of, of self? You're You're fragmented. You've got twisted views on different things here and there and it and it they things crop up like that even to this day for me i wasn't sure how to have the conversation with angel about attitudes to the body and sexuality as she was born into the children of god now called the family which was from its inception a sex cult what i think came out of the discussion is a terribly disturbing look into how leaders of any religious group can impose their own twisted views of sexuality upon that entire group as I've said, the science indicates that trigger warnings have the opposite effect to the desired one, upsetting people before the warned-of thing even gets shared. But people often want them, and Angel wanted one. So fair warning, the following contains frank discussion of extremely f***ed up sex cult attitudes and practices. This is something that we should talk about, and I don't, I don't know exactly how to broach it, so I guess help me out. Um, okay. I've been talking to people mainly who live in what they would call purity culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually don't know the ways in which that would be identical or similar to your background or the opposite. So, I mean, most of us grew up with this great shame about our bodies and yeah. everyone was very covered up and girls were not to have display any sexual appeal or any yeah. hint, any hint that there would be anything sexual that would they even be thinking about. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people raised like I, I was raised, um, are unable to function as sexual people um, once they're done with their upbringing 
And I'm not saying that's just as bad or, or anything. I don't know, actually, in what ways your upbringing would have been the same and other ways in which it would have been opposite, because people don't have any idea what you went through. They really don't. It wasn't that you went to a church that told you your skirt was too short. That's not the situation. No. So the the cult that I was in was started by a pedophile hmm. um, who heavily documented his um the fact that he wanted to have sex with his mother he also like sexually abused his own children and claimed to have sex with one of his daughters he also heavily sexually abused his granddaughters and very vocal about it because for him this is all normal and so he encouraged sex between children and adults because he was like kids are curious about it which means it's natural so as an adult you should feed the child's natural curiosity by having sex with them. So that was the environment that I was born into with a, you know, a little Christianity thrown in. I was raised to be afraid of like gang rape. That was my main worry when I was like five years old, because they told me that that is what I was set up for is I was going to have to seduce men during the end time. And I was going to be gang raped by soldiers. And in order to um, make it through that, I had to understand that I was a vessel. And like, as a woman, I'm made to be gang raped. So when it happens, I should just learn to accept it. And so I would go to bed at five years old trying to prepare myself for gang rape. Um, I have no idea what to say to that. You can't say anything to it because it's so atrocious. And then this is just part of my brain setup. So then when I do receive sexual abuse, I'm just thankful that it's not gang rape. Right. They've just Um, taken the bar and lowered it through the floor. Right, right, right. It's a low bar, but these people clear it. So it's okay. Now, are there, are there any ways in which they did have that streak of Christianity you speak about that we might recognize something in it? They had a lot of Christianity, and they would use the fact that God created sex as their main thing. So if God didn't want you to have sex with 12-year-olds, why are they ovulating? So then they would use it that way, where hmm. like God knew what he was doing. And then it's also, well... God wants us to have sex with children and it's only the laws of man, like the systemite laws that are in here perverting it. Cause we actually have it pure and it's just society can't handle like the purity that God created. And then also the whole thing of like, as a perfect woman that God created, you're supposed to submit to God and then God comes through the men in your life. So as the perfect woman, you need to submit to the men in your life. So it's just, that same thing of Christianity where it's used to oppress. And I I mean, I think it's the same thing for any religion that is used to oppress women. It's the same rhetoric. And this one just happened to have a very like perverted flair. There are a lot of rules about makeup and clothing and that kind of thing for you. Yes. So I was taught to dress as provocatively as possible, grow my hair as long as possible and be as like dainty, as womanly, as, as silent and naturally beautiful as possible. And I was only allowed to enhance my beauty as long as God wouldn't be upset by the coloring that I used. Weird. So I could put on like lip gloss and mascara. But if I tried to put on blush, that was a different shade than my natural blush. I would get in trouble if I tried to use a darker shade on my lips. Mm-hmm. Um, men and God wouldn't like that for me. So there were a lot of rules like that of like, be mediocre, but if you try to be something 
past that, if it seems like you're trying to elevate yourself, then you deserve to be punished. I think somebody said that women are supposed to be small and quiet. No, I don't mean in my church. I mean, women in general have said that they have felt that pressure, that, that you're not supposed to take up space. You're not supposed to be loud or any of those things. The guys, we were not supposed to be fashionable. Yes. We weren't supposed to look cool. We're, we're allowed to look as affluent as we wanted. That was okay, as long as it looked like you had money. But if you're right. being fashionable, it had to look like the sort of fashionable that you were just at the office or your business casual. It wasn't, you couldn't be cool. That was bad. Here's my question then, right? Is like, why? Because it was, you'd fit in. If Because I was going to regular school. You didn't get to go to high school, I'm assuming, right? No, no school. So I was going to high school and they Mm -hmm. had to control me while I was there. So that's why. Is if you're too cool, you'll fit in. It always comes back to someone else's need to control. Mm -hmm. Because it makes no sense. Like, why do I have to be quiet all the time? Who does that benefit? Yeah. And of course, if you're beating me every time I talk, it benefits me to be quiet which is the dynamic that they set up early on. Because in a macro level, if I never find my voice, it makes it easier to police the entire community. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's not nearly the same with me. I was punished with a wooden paddle as a, a child that had Bible verses written on it so that I would understand, yes. which is not, I, I think, a, a key strategy in making people love the Bible. You shouldn't hit kids with it. And And honestly, I'm sure I'm not the only person that would say that things that really stick out of my memory weren't being hit with a wooden paddle. There were social things, there were emotional things. And I actually think that neglect hurt a lot mm-hmm. of it, a, a lot worse than abuse. And I think there are studies that back that. Yeah. Where it shows that neglect is worse. We were comfortably deprived, if that makes any sense. Kept us quiet and comfortable while we didn't get to even ask after all the things that you would normally have. Some people don't think you ever need to get involved, don't think you ever need to get your hands dirty, don't think anything should ever need to get awkward or complicated. I ran past Cheryl, my ideas about needing to deal, to get one's hands dirty, to dig into the uncomfortable areas and look clearly at things in there. I was raised to expect this to be a really, really bad idea to ever do. And what it feels like for me is taking a bunch of random broken shards of glass, or whatever, and kind of alphabetizing the whole thing and putting it safely away in a box and putting it on a shelf where that goes. And then if anyone asks about it, it's like, well, here's the box and here's the stuff, but it's not sort of randomly blindsiding me all the time. And I know that most of the people that I was raised with are hoping to go to the grave without ever thinking about these things. And in fact, you know, I'm not from the West Coast. I don't talk about energy very much or negativity. But a lot of my people I talk to, when you say deal, I've had people say, what What does that mean to deal? And I realized that it was such an obvious thing. I didn't even know what to say. Like, what would you say if someone says, what does it mean to deal with things? It means to dust them off from the shelf, to look at them, and to actually go into them without fear. Um, it's fear that we don't want to put them on the shelf until we've gone into them. Um, because it's fear of what we're going to find. We're so afraid of being judged and we're afraid we've done something wrong. And so we're afraid to look at the things that, that bother us that need to go into a box. And it's all part of finding order within because you find all these little boxes that you put on shelves inside of yourself. You open them up. Because they'll arise, new situations will arise, you'll feel that box rattling and wanting to come out and affect the present moment. And if you 
deal with it, it means you're looking at it and observation dissolves it. If you look at it and see it for what it is, because what is in the box, friend, isn't even real. <laughs> it's, it's not even real. It's something we've created with our thoughts and we've defined it and we've said what it is. And once you really deal with it and look at it, it just dissolves because it's not real. Like half the time, if you're me, you're you're imagining the judgment of others. You're emulating them. You're like you're pretending that you can predict all of their negative feelings to you. And you are inventing their feelings and responding to them. You're not active. You're passive. And yet you're reacting yes. to things that aren't even real. So I really, exactly. really agree with that. What did you have to do or how did it work to find your way to being someone who, I mean, you, you're on Instagram, you're looking good, not for like a cult to approve of. You're looking good because you want to look good for your own reasons, I assume. And how'd you get there? So though, how you get there is by being willing to be constantly uncomfortable. Really? Constantly uncomfortable. So every time I post something, it, I want it to feel like I shouldn't be posting it. I feel a little bit uncomfortable doing it and then I'll do it. And then I grow, my capacity grows. For the women that you're describing, I guess feeling uncomfortable for them would be starting to walk into a more sensual version of themselves. And mm-hmm. for me, it was walking away from that because I was so trained that if a man enters the room, I need to immediately have him find me attractive. Otherwise I'm doing my life wrong. So for me, it was the sitting there being uncomfortable and not going out of my way to make sure that the men who walked into the room felt important. And that felt uncomfortable for me. Did you have not, to over, overdo it? Like, did you sort of go way down the other direction for a, have a phase where you were trying to not do anything to be attractive? A hundred percent. hundred percent. I'm just because, assuming. Yeah. Oh, but that's what it is, right? That you let go of the pendulum at one end. Yeah. It swings almost all of the way to the other. And then you got to let it go at that end too and let it swing almost all the way back. Mm-hmm. And you just let that happen until somehow you find balance, but you got to let the swing happen. Okay. You can't just catch it at the other end and be like, this is the, you know, this is the right thing to do. No, it's the same mindset. It's just the the opposite thing. We want to skip uh, to the end without any of the stuff in the middle. Like I, I was standing on the street corner with my friend's wife uh, was, was raised Sikh and mm-hmm. an arranged marriage, which she had to flee. And yeah. so we're saying there, I've got long hair at the time, more than now even. And she's got like, not a buzz cut, but pretty much. And we're kind of, I'm kind of looking at her and realizing like everything you're wearing and your hair and everything is all the things you're not allowed. Like you're like 55 and all of it's, it's like a collection of all the things you're not supposed to do. And most of what I have, I'm not supposed to do. I would like to think we grow out of it, but maybe we don't to some degree. Let yourself emerge into the next iteration of yourself. Right. And there were a lot of people that came out and did the exact opposite of what they were told to do. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make for a less painful life, no. you know, because you're still in the mindset. You've just flipped it. I knew I that, out. but it doesn't mean I can stop doing it. Exactly. Well, and you can only stop doing it if you're willing to feel uncomfortable. Right. And so for me, the way that I walk myself into the version of myself that I'm today is because I'm willing to be uncomfortable. End game for you. You're trying to move mm. from a from a place where making men be attractive, that's way too important. But you're trying to get to a place where it can be a thing, but not everything. Is that right? For me, I'm trying to get to a place where I live playfully. Right. And I feel safe. Goes- that's a huge topic, play. Yeah. I, I've only started thinking about that one because... 
you know, doing music and I've always done music, which is a form of play. And, and I have this superstition about overeducating myself in it. Mm-hmm. And so the music teacher at my school sure wants me to have some more music theory. And there's people all over YouTube telling me about all the chords that I'm using and things. And it, for me, it, I have to save something that's play somehow. Yes. And I think that the more that you can find play in your life, the more that you find joy, because play is you, it's, you're not getting play right. You're playing. Yeah. And so if you can get to a point in your life where you're playing with, you know, you play with your career, maybe you switch jobs, you play with your business, maybe you add a sale or maybe you add a new product. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't take, you think, oh, well, and you change it. And if you're not playing, then it's like, why didn't the product work? Who's responsible for this? Why did I think, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to just being in a place of abundance in your life where like, I feel safe enough to play a little bit with my finances. I feel safe enough to play a little with my hobbies. I feel, you know, safe enough in this environment to play a little with flirting or to play a little with my fashion choices or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Like, how can you get to a placeful, like curiosity state as opposed to the need to always know? Mm-hmm. I am actually going to be interviewing somebody about purity culture mm-hmm. because it is very opposite of what I went through, right? Like well, now or whenever you, you can ask me whatever you want to know, uh, because, <laughs> uh, you know, I was raised by a father that didn't want me to be alone in the same room as my sister or my cousins, because someone might play doctor at some point. Well, I think that the main theme is the same where like, you shouldn't be alone with girls because you're a monster. Right. And if you have any sort of sexual feelings, you're a monster. Mm -hmm. And then for me, what I was taught is like, let boys or adults or whoever touch you because they're monsters. And if you say no, then the real monster is going to come out and they will have like a righteous rage given by God to hurt you for rejecting them. And that's just how men naturally are. So you get the you're a monster and I get the message also that you're a monster. You really understand this. And like I've talked to a lot of women who think it was awesome to be a man because it was all against women. And yes, it was all against women. But I think you know that it wasn't all awesome to be the man either, right? Oh, my gosh. And that was something that I didn't realize until I was able to work far enough through my own pain to see other people's. Because for me, all of my life, men were the oppressors. And then at some point, I realized that oppressors are simply acting out the oppression that they know. And I do also think that in the recovery journey, it is easier to be a woman. Like the abuse part, I think is much worse for women, Yeah, but the recovery journey is easier because women get a lot more support um, as opposed to, to this day, if you're a man and you're like, oh, I feel bad because I raped someone when they were six, I have no empathy for you. Like Me neither. We don't even, we don't know how to have empathy for that. Oh God, um, no. But and, and it's you know, it's that's not my situation, but all of us have to be okay. So no matter what you've done or what anyone's exactly. done to you, you have to be okay. And so you won't be surprised exactly. to hear that we went to a youth camp and there's always child abuse in every uh, everywhere. Like in my group, look for the control freaks and that's where it's happening. If they have yeah. to control what their kids eat, then that's happening too. And I don't know why, but clearly remember this youth camp where you're supposed to go and meet all the other people from around America and Canada who are in your church and you can look for girlfriends and all that. And it's supposed to be very happy. But they had this serious meeting with us segregated. There was a separate one for the girls and one for the guys. And my recollection of it is that the girls were encouraged to come forward. Um, The meeting's purpose was to have them kind of line up after and, you know, come forward about all the abuse that they had suffered and try to get names. 
and the guys, we were all encouraged to come forward and admit that we had abused girls. Yeah. And I felt that, uh, however, I don't remember a word. I don't remember a word of what they said to it, us. I just remember that feeling that, Oh, we're the monsters, like we're the we're abusers. The and yeah. and it, it occurred to me that boys, little boys get hurt too. It's, it's not all hundred percent. And I think that if they get hurt without the allowance for recovery, right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I get hurt and I have the allowance to recover. I come out of this thing and I say, Hey, I was raised in a cult that was started by a pedophile. I get nothing but empathy and encouragement and the men come out of it. First of all, they wouldn't talk about it. And if they do, people high five them. They're like, Oh man, you mean you can fuck whoever? Yeah. Like, wait, how many girls have you fucked? And then there were high fives all around. And then it's like, well, these boys have been encouraged to do that since they were six or seven. Like, that's not great. You guys like that's, that's child abuse. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, like it's a, it's a horrible thing to go through and you're, you're perverting a natural process by throwing adults into the mix. And my situation I think would be the opposite here where I I have a very clear memory of being in my mid twenties and hanging out with a bunch of guys who had never had girlfriends and Mm -hmm. they were wanting church elders to speak to certain girls because the girls are making them quote unquote suffer. Uh, So most of these guys are still like, they've never had girlfriends and they're now in their fifties. Here's my thing is that again, it's a religion feeling like it can come in and control a very natural human dynamic. And whenever that happens, it has no, if you put a lid on something that naturally needs to grow, its only option is to grow back into itself and pervert and emerge as something else that's like sinister and unnatural. And so by virtue of the church coming in and being like at a very young age telling you like, by the way, you're a monster and never address this part of yourself ever. And good luck for the rest of your life. It like, it really, it almost makes it impossible for you to not impossible for you not to be a monster. But if you're told this and you're given like marginal evidence for it, but you become sufficiently afraid of yourself, it will stop you from being able to grow past that. And in in order to like preserve others. And again, it stems from a beautiful place of empathy and wanting to keep yourself and others safe. But in order to do that, you really have to stem this whole side of yourself. And it ends up either becoming something really sinister or dying. And it's all because somebody wanted to control you. I use the word stunted a lot in terms of what I feel we Mm -hmm. came out of this, like in terms of the natural growth process was interfered with. And what you've just said is... It doesn't just mean that you don't develop. It means that you develop in twisted ways. Yeah. I think like what you're saying about anything natural. And I wasn't straight up told that I was a monster. We were certainly made to feel that way. But, you know, people want to know what were we told? Well, a lot of people like my father taught me that boys can't say no. Like boys don't. It's not a possibility for boys to say no to sex. And therefore, the girls have to say no because the boys are unable to. So any woman who is messing with guys is playing with them and she has more power because she could say no and he can't. And I'm sorry to say that in my adult life, um, I found a lot of people who never went within a light year of Christianity who are a little bit appalled when guys can say no to sex. Right. To them, that's not, guys can't do that. And sorry to say, we we can. Well, and that's the thing. It's, it's again, it's the, what, whichever sex it goes to, it's the fact that you're not allowing them to be human, right? Because yeah. if I just think of you as being human and, and you ask me, Angel, should human beings be able to give or take away consent for their sexuality? Yes, absolutely. Of course. But then if you gender it 
and you say, well, you know, do men have the right to withhold sex? Then it becomes a whole social thing of like, however, the, however the world views that class of men, social economically or just socially, then it will affect the answer. And that's why I'm so big on seeing people as human beings, because if you just see a person as a human being, it's much easier, you know? So like, of course, men can be abused as children as well, or of course, men can hurt. And of course, men can cry and all this stuff. And of course, women can have intellectual conversation. But all of that is, I think, very specifically not taught in religion in order to maintain a power dynamic. And to be clear, we we were not told that we didn't have a right to say no. We were told that we didn't have the capability built into us to say no. Yeah, 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 yeah. A hundred percent. And 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 again, it makes you yourself. And what and so what I've found is um, just try saying no to a girl that you like, and she will decide that maybe you're not a man because you were able to say no. Curry disapproves of what he sees as wasting the life that we have to live. And if I cared about anybody that was participating in that lifestyle, it would be hard mm-hmm. because it, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's to me, it's such a waste. Um, it's just such a waste. Can you imagine living that way, you know, for, for the majority of your life and then, um, and, and then, you know, and then getting sick or dealing with an illness or, or passing away. And then that was your whole life. Yeah. And it's just like, holy shit, like what a tragedy. Michael Vetter, who was raised in my group, but now lives on a mountaintop in Tennessee, agrees. That's, I think that's so much it. It's like um, that there is no idea that what you do here is live. The only thing that you can come up with if you're not living is, well, you, you're here to, to get other people saved. You know, that's that's our purpose on Earth. Um, it's the whole idea of the fairyland magic castle heaven that, that we get to go to when we die. I, I think it, if there's a resurrection, which I believe in, and, um, and and we get to be with the Lord, we're with the Lord. It never says, you shall be with the Lord in heaven. It doesn't say that. No. It's very bad, I I believe. I think it dehumanizes the human experience entirely. I remember having conversations with yourself or your dad or both at different times and and having what i thought was a very unhealthy view of this life that and i I can't remember if this came from you or your dad but thinking that you know this life isn't that important because it's eternity that matters and this is just Mm -hmm. getting us ready for that and i specifically remember that a conversation about that and about how everything we do in this life reflects us in the afterlife and 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 about your dad again i think this comes from your dad because i remember really grilling him on some of these questions because mm-hmm. me not having a hard time getting it about like you know that because i remember thinking well if i'm saved and i've accepted jesus into my heart and there's nothing that can unsave me okay cool um well then why do I have to worry about if I want to do a couple of things? Like, why do I have to, yeah. like, I remember specific, and I remember asking your dad about that and you about that and having, you know, you, you guys explain it to me about, well, everyone will go to heaven, but those of us will be, will have a better place in heaven. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, honestly, this sounds like a lot of horseshit. I specifically yeah. remember thinking yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of bullshit. 
And um, I still think that quite frankly. There's a bit of a bait and switch going on. They're saying Jesus died. So you don't have to worry about sin anymore. Now listen to us talk to you about your sit, your, the potential of you might sin, you know, for an hour. It's cool. You just told me that Jesus died. So I wouldn't have to think about it. Why should I think about it? And there's something very contradictory going on there. The meeting people always struck me as I didn't take this life seriously enough. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Is that they, is like, this life doesn't matter. Like, you know, this life, it, it, and it's all about preening and 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 and, and, and preparation, I suppose, for the afterlife or whatever. And and I remember, I remember not agreeing with that, mm-hmm. and I don't agree with that still. And I and I now as an adult, I think that's fucking tragic. Yeah. Um. And, but I definitely, I definitely think there's something there about they're not trying to wring everything out of this life. And they're so convinced that what their main purpose in this life is, is either to live a life that puts you in the best position in heaven, or that they believe that they're an instrument of God and that the part, a big part of their life's work is to spread the word of God. You, and I don't fully understand, nor do I quite frankly give two fucks mm-hmm. um, what, what piece of that is what, but I re- specifically thought that was pretty unfortunate. I still do. Yeah. And I think, I think that that view steals people's time from this life and i think that's tragic does that make sense absolutely yeah that's really sad and really true like wasted like what they were given what they had in their talents Mm -hmm. which is really sad like if you think about um, i know you know even more than i do but i knew plenty of musical brethren young people and like what can you do with music in, in the brethren, it's very, very circumscribed. Well, you can sacrifice it. You can sacrifice it yeah, to the Lord. Put it on the altar. Put it on yes. the altar and let them out. Of the joy-hating God. People talk about sense of entitlement of the youth or sense of entitlement. I said the biggest sense of entitlement we as humans have is that we are entitled to perfect parents. And we are entitled to perfect children. And so when our parents do some, have done something wrong, oh, you're horrible parents. And now we go to therapy and we get it all fixed. Yes, you should have had perfect parents. Where are these perfect parents we should have all had? The world is messy. Where are these perfect children we should have all had? The world is messy. So we have to make do with what we have, which means moving forward with some contrarianism, some imperfections, some, and, and sometimes we have to do that. Now, for people who did not grow up this way. Um, what are, what are just some of the limits that thinking back um, seem most arbitrary or things you most did not want to be limited in? For us, it was just about not being able to participate and enjoy. It's just normal human interactions being tainted by the feeling that this person is not a Christian. This person is a Christian, but is a worldly Christian. Mm -hmm. This person is a Christian, but is a denominational Christian. We can't be on the same level with each other. So for me, where I grieve and mourn the most is the lost opportunities to have relationships, friendships, normal human interactions, even with like grandparents with aunts and uncles with cousins with you know people i went to school with 
because we were always so aware that we were different from them and separate from them. Um, I have a song about that being a bizarre approach to life, the necessity of getting your hands dirty to properly live life and to connect with all sorts of people and experiences. You can't isolate yourself like that in a culture, church, or, or in, in anything. Oh, my goodness. You have images in the Bible of Jesus, this, this whole thing of, of washing their feet, saying you are clean, but you're walking in this world, so you're getting dirty. So all we need to do is just wash your feet a little bit. It's, that's completely different than putting the whole person in the washing machine all the time. He's teaching that every once in a while, we need to help each other and wash each other's feet symbolically. Um, and that is just reminding them of what is real and true. Um, Cause it's really easy to get lost here. Very easy to get lost. Our, and uh, the whole body can become clean, but if we just help each other, keep our feet clean, we'll be okay. I've benefited a lot from learning what the Jewish outlook on the old Testament is in trying to not Christianize the new Testament in a silly way. And one of the things that kind of just came to me and it's been borne out by other people is this idea in the Old Testament of cleansing and defilement is not really tied up in guilt and shame at all. Mm-mm. So men and women get defiled, they're unclean. They all do just by having bodies, they get unclean in all different ways mm-hmm. and, and then they cleanse themselves. And there doesn't seem to be this Christian view that you'll never get defiled until you break a rule. That doesn't seem to be part of the Bible, New or Old Testament. Not defiling yourself and that the, the goal of the Christian life is to be very careful to never touch anything, taste anything, handle anything, mm-hmm. download anything, well, view shot, anything. Not, not, right. Download not, stream not, you know, view not, right. subscribe right. not. Um, to keep himself unspotted from the world, right. as James said. We knew the word sullied. I mean, how many people know the word unsullied and sullied if they don't watch Game of Thrones? I don't but, watch Game of Thrones and I know the word very well. Yeah, the unsullied are, have their unsullied. testicles cut off. And so, um, oh, yeah. so that yeah. gives you a little bit of an idea of what they're suggesting there is sex is dirty as usual. But if we're not even right. talking about sex, what do you think about that culture of the, that that's, that's what spirituality is? I call it subtractive spirituality, that we remove the things that might defile us and then we're pretty much good. I don't think that's healthy because what is it that our Lord says? It is not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of the man is what defiles the man. What Jesus basically says, and he's talking to Jews and Jews had very strict laws about defilement, but I swear, I I don't don't see any reason to believe that they had any shame associated with it. So yes, if, if you need to take a dump, Mm-hmm. to the old testament you're defiled and there's no shame in that mm-hmm. everybody needs to do that mm-hmm. and what jesus is saying there in the king james i think it says it says um that what goes in the mouth comes out in the draft which i yes, think is a, a euphemism that's basically saying that you know what actually makes people dirty it's what comes out of them it's not that you ate something like pork or whatever mm-hmm. you're not supposed to but if you get mm-hmm. defiled there's this rituals that they did that, that then they were fine and i don't think there was shame about mm-hmm. it what makes you, in the words of George Carlin, shitting on your hands, that makes you defiled. And I have talked to Christians that wouldn't say the word shit, but the things Mm -hmm. that came out of their mouth when I spoke to them were just the most twisted things without a swear word there. So I noticed that 
you know, as you can tell, I, I censor the F word in the podcast because it's the most egregious and I, I avoid like the N word and the C word because those are egregious words. Apart from that, I, I want people to feel they can just talk normally and they do. Um, mm-hmm. But when it comes to, you know, this discussion, brethren, people approach me and say like, you know, I, I agree with you on a lot of things, but there's just this one thing. There's just one thing that bothers me about how you live, mm-hmm. you know, having long mm-hmm. hair, listening to rock and roll, not going to mm-hmm. church. Like I don't like these things, but I can live with them. But the thing with the mm-hmm. swearing though, like you, yeah. you, you say those words. And so I asked them like, what, what do you, what are, what's your thinking behind this being a problem? Said, well, it says right in the Bible. Said, well, where does it say it? How many places? Well, in the one place. And it says, let no corrupt, no corrupt communication, communication come. see it out of your mouth. And I'm saying, well, does it say there's like a list of words or it's saying that you shouldn't communicate something twisted. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually think that if we extended that to saying that we we shouldn't say things that are just messed up, that put completely gratuitously perverse things in people's heads. So, I mean, we live in a time when everyone's an urban dictionary and everyone's on the internet and they know what everyone's mm-hmm. fetishes are and all those things. And I'm not saying there's anything, I don't want to kink shame anybody, but uh, we live in a time when without saying a single swear word, you could immediately mm-hmm. put the image in someone's head of all manner of things. And I'm, I don't, I don't think, I can't imagine Jesus gasping with shock because someone said shit. I, I honestly, I, I can't. And I believe. He'd probably say it with the best of them. I think. Well, I, I believe that when he says that verse that he's saying, he's not using formal language. He's using slangy language while talking on the street, saying right. that it's not what goes in the mouth. It's what comes out when you crap, when you take a dump that defiles mm-hmm. you. And with the idea that of course things defile you, but then you wash your hands. So what do you think about mm-hmm being raised in a culture with the idea that you could somehow magically never, ever, ever, ever get defiled. And if you did, it needed to be filled with just a lifelong cascade of shame. That is certainly the way I was raised. I, I think it's very, it's very much about control, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Somebody told it's- me that Jesus never lost his temper because that would have been sin. And so when he overthrew the tables in the temple... Um, mm-hmm. You know the story where he premeditatedly constructs a whip, strides in and kicks over the tables and yells at everybody? Yes. Well, people have told me that he did that very calmly and lovingly and that the whip oh, was yes. certainly not to threaten humans with, but it was to drive the animals out that they had and that it would have mm-hmm. been done in a gracious, you know, Christian way. And oh, yes. I'm sorry, but I, I, I can't imagine that being what happened. No, I, that's, that's ridiculous. That, that's, we were always taught the same thing that our Lord lost his temper in a very controlled way in a very like when he performative way good word and then we were taught like when he wept at the grave of Lazarus we never thought to connect that with Isaiah 53 surely he has carried our griefs and our sorrows no we said oh he is weeping at the grave of Lazarus because the people, the Jews, believe that he cannot raise Lazarus from the dead. So we had a very, very convoluted way of explaining every time our Lord showed emotion, we had a very convoluted way to explain exactly why he was showing emotion. We're so focused on the Bible, but then we were very uncomfortable with things like Jesus being human. And imagine that he very. knew this family and he went there and the sisters were not only weeping, they were mm-hmm. indignant that Jesus had delayed and was kind of blaming him for this death. And right. then, and the guy's literally buried his friend. Mm-hmm. And the idea that he wouldn't feel any emotion at all 
And that if he did mm-hmm. feel emotion, it was some kind of a righteous weeping for the unbelief of Israel. This reminds me of the people who read the book of the Song of Solomon, which is nothing but straight up erotic poetry, very explicit yeah, erotic poetry, and telling explicit. us that this was absolutely not in any way about the sexual act. Was your, group, we was your assembly like mine that they wouldn't say sexual? They would have said like moral evil or the physical oh act or something? Oh my gosh, the word sex, you might as well say the word shit. Yeah. It was just as taboo. Everything was moral evil. So when you heard moral evil, you understood, oh, that's sexual. We would say fornication. We would use fornication and adultery um, interchangeably. Yes. We didn't realize that those two words really do not mean the same way. No. Adultery would be breaking of the marriage covenant, whereas fornication would be extramarital sex. But we use it interchangeably. The source word for fornication as well. No one wants to know that it's the Greek word porneia, and it basically means um, it's, it comes from the same root as the word pornography. It basically means the behavior of prostitutes, and it's not just outside of marriage; it's outside of any cultural norms. And so it's uh, it, it's it's like when people say perversion. Um, so when it says like "let not fornication be named among you." It's pretty much saying, I don't want to hear about any completely crazy out there, you know, behaviors from you guys. Like the guy in Corinthians. Yes. Who was so messed up. They can't decide whether he was in a relationship with his mother or a stepmother or is Mm -hmm. like his father's third wife. Um, We don't know what it was. All I know, all I know is I'm called a wicked person and they're quoting a verse that's describing him. And so when I was told put you out from among yourselves, that wicked person. That wicked person and they're applying yeah. that wicked person to me. They're talking mm-hmm. about a mother. Yeah, literally. And that's what they're calling me. And right. so that's why I respelled it, but I kind of kept it. And I guess people don't know why I'm using that, but I, I'm stuck with it. I, I don't think I'll ever, and, and it doesn't bother me a whole lot, but it's, it's mm-hmm. a, I think it's a, it's a formative thing that my birth culture yeah. that I, that I gave up almost everything of my childhood for, has branded me for life the same thing as that guy in corinthians and i've also pointed out that first corinthians put them out they're in trouble because they didn't put them out second corinthians Mm -hmm. let them back in they're in trouble because they didn't let them back in and Mm -hmm. here i am it's been a few years since 1997 i've been open to talk about it ever since and they will Mm -hmm. not whether or not they want to let me back in i'd certainly chat with them about it i would have them on this podcast to talk about it Mm -hmm. and you know i'm not holding out hope that anybody would be willing to come on this podcast and talk about it. I fear this whole purity culture thing might possibly have something to do with, um, sex. And we're not supposed to speak openly about that. Not really. If it's anything beyond the nuts and bolts of procreation, so to speak, we don't really feel comfortable discussing it as a thing that's out there in the world with us, a thing we might be part of or have thoughts and feelings about and problems with. As much as I grew up knowing our Plymouth Brethren group had some pretty messed up attitudes towards sex, I have never really outgrown my indoctrination that Western society itself, in church groups and outside of them, continues to have some pretty messed up attitudes about sex. So, I still think that. Me and Hannah Gadsby. In fact, it's one of those things we're still not able to talk about maturely and honestly in words in most rooms. Mostly, we just joke about it. Our conversations are generally performative, 
with us hiding much of our true thinking and feeling on the subject and our own experiences, conversing in careful terror of anyone thinking we're different in any way from anyone, that we might be some kind of pervert. So much about the discussions I had with the various people seems to me to be about the uncomfortable fact that girls, upon entering puberty, sometimes start trying to be physically appealing, and in some cases, at some point in their teens or twenties, end up perhaps succeeding a bit. This appears to be extremely uncomfortable. For some reason, we're all weird about that. We have teenage girls and women in their twenties being miserable and not feeling physically appealing, while drawing all kinds of disapproval and criticism from women as to whether they are not, or are in fact, appealing, and whether they're doing too many too overt things or not doing enough carefully chosen tasteful things to succeed at being appealing in a female-approved way. All of this while often drawing the secretly appreciative attention of all of the straight males in the vicinity to the point of some of them acting extremely creepy about it and almost everyone feeling very guilty and awkward about everything that's going on. Just as if males in general having an involuntary sexual response to fertile young women is the most unnatural, inexplicably random gender atrocity ever perpetuated and about which everyone should feel very ashamed and blame our twisted society, the media, and the patriarchy for. And this goes double for women who are guilty of being girly. All this puts young women in a very tricky place, especially with the heightened, narrow expectations of a church circle obsessed with purity culture. Things are so much simpler for us straight males. Don't make women feel unattractive. Or attractive. Certainly don't give any sign if you are attracted personally. Women do not need or want your approval for how appealing or unappealing they are to us straight men. The opinion of gay men is much more important than yours because they are men who can say women are attractive without being attracted themselves. So guys, make sure to compliment women so they feel they are attractive in a general, purely theoretical, impersonal way, of course. Don't notice or comment on their physical appearance, outfits, weight, or hairdos, though. Instead, notice their intellect and strong empowerment. Let them know how aware you are that they are smarter than you are and that you like women who are smarter than you are. Also, don't fail to notice or forget to comment on their physical appearance, particularly new outfits, lost weight, or new hairdos. That's important. And remember that they don't need a man. They're enough just as they are. What they really need is a man who isn't afraid to and can, purely in theory, cry, crying being the most characteristic trait of all women always, or, or maybe not. Uh, they don't want to have to deal on a regular basis with a crying man, of course. So annoying. Wouldn't date one, certainly. Women want to be held when they're crying, unless they don't. They don't need the man to pay, unless they do. They want a man who can easily afford to pay for the things they are going to consume and enjoy, so they can refuse his offer to pay, unless they don't. Women aren't visual and superficial about men's bodies, of course, except when they are, they certainly do not want to spark an involuntary, unchosen, unconsented-to sexual response in the males in the room using nothing more than their own appearance, unless they do. Hopefully that's simple and clear and everyone knows what's expected of them. This is so much about young women. Back when we had magazines, both men's magazines and women's magazines were filled with quite similar images of appealing young women being alluring. 
because female sex appeal is power, unless it isn't. A great deal of money is certainly made from it each day, which is totally fine and okay, unless it's not. One thing is certain. It is definitely either female empowerment and agency, or it is a form of crushing systemic oppression, or both, or, or neither, or maybe it depends. Remember, it's always wrong for anyone to generalize about anything, unless you're Robin D'Angelo. Oftentimes people get their backs up just in the fact that I'm generalizing, and that's like a very sacred ideology, right? You can't generalize. Well, actually, as a sociologist, I can. <laughs> In the 90s, one of the holy crap, did we just really see that in a movie, movies Bill and I went and saw, was American Beauty. It starts off with Kevin Spacey playing a middle-aged, married loser, enthusiastically masturbating in the shower before work. Look at me, jerking off in the shower. This will be the high point of my day. It's all downhill from here. Now... Men aren't supposed to need to do that. They are supposed to be sexually active at all times, starting in early high school, while also not bothering any actual women with their troubling, unnatural, and problematic physical needs, which were, of course, given to them by society and the media and the patriarchy to begin with, and would not, of course, otherwise exist naturally. American Beauty goes on to depict Spacey's hapless, midlife crisis-experiencing man getting some pot, a sports car, weights, and a romantic and sexual crush on a teenage girl, all purposely depicted in a laughably, painfully awkward way. And, having decided he shouldn't, after all, have sex with a teenage girl, the movie's loser protagonist has his moment of personal realization and is then shot in the head and dies happily. The world doesn't need him, or people like him. As Andrea Dworkin wrote, "...only when manhood is dead." And it will perish when ravaged femininity no longer sustains it. Only then will we know what it is to be free. Sally Miller Gearhart writes, The proportion of men must be reduced to, and maintained at, approximately 10% of the human race. Girl power. Now, how, you may ask, could they create a film like American Beauty that depicted such cringy, taboo, problematic, crazy, commonplace things as these when it was almost the 21st century. I mean, there were young women's upper torsos clearly visible in it, two of them, some men's too, and Kevin Spacey's butt. I really didn't need to see that. How did they get away with a film like this, besides it being the 90s, a far freer time for art, entertainment, and self-expression than we enjoy today? It's simple. You're watching an amusing, hip, gay actor embodying and acting out a stereotypical, slapstick version of badly aging, pathetic, straight manhood written by a second amused, hip, gay writer. So, it becomes two layers deep of straight men being lampooned by people who aren't straight men. Has to be. Because we know things. We know that when women are getting a sexual response from males around them, it's not something they're doing, ever. They have no agency there at all. It's the men, often while asleep, having a deeply twisted problem and selfishly sexualizing and choosing to objectify the purely passive, tragically objectified objects of their bodies' unnatural, societally constructed desires. Radical feminists and the old ladies from many church potlucks agree it's all deeply disgusting that men's bodies have automatic positive responses to women's bodies just by seeing them or being in the same room with them. And young women who want or somehow get male attention should be ashamed. 
I hear women complaining often that they get all this creepy attention in their teens and 20s, then become invisible in Hollywood and outside of it once they gain weight and or hit middle age. I think the male end of that is your teenage libido being thought either the stuff of comedy movies about ruined pies or of date rape trials waiting to happen, and then, by middle age, suddenly you've become creepy and off-putting just by being in the room at all and should just go away somewhere alone, maybe in the woods. A universal female experience is unnecessarily crossing the street at night because a man is walking some distance behind her and it's creepy. The male end of that is the universal experience of frightenedly crossing the street at night because a woman is walking some distance in front of you and it's creepy. There is so much expectation about who is to be attractive and who is to be attracted and when and why and what exactly we want them to be thinking and feeling when they are. American Beauty looks even odder now that lead actor Kevin Spacey has been accused of not merely being a gay actor portraying a straight man bothering a teenage girl in a movie in a script written by a gay writer, but of being a gay man bothering various teenage boys in real life as himself for his own reasons. We can't really joke around about that. It would be reassuring to claim that radical feminists, trans activists, gender studies students, and Judith Butler and lesbians in general have finally arrived at sensible, balanced, healthy attitudes toward sex and sexual feelings that everyone, including straight men like me, should have adopted about women and sexuality by now. But far too many women, including ones who are proudly sexually attracted to female bodies, have told me it's perverse and exploitive when men are or that we need to be attracted to, shall we say, a broader class of women, much broader, or ones with scrota, and that if we're not, clearly, we're bigots, just as if we're entirely in control of what interests us sexually and should be encouraged to make better choices about that at the behest of others. Writing about men, Valerie Solanus says, the male has a negative Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to shit. Sheila Jeffries writes, When a woman reaches orgasm with a man, she is only collaborating with the patriarchal system eroticizing her own oppression. Ty Grace Atkinson writes, The institution of sexual intercourse is anti-feminist. Andrea Dworkin, writing about sexual intercourse in her book Intercourse, says that when intercourse is heterosexual, it is the pure, sterile, formal expression of men's contempt for women. I went to meeting every week with a lot of women who felt exactly the same way. I remain thoroughly unreassured that as a society and a species, we've finally got things mostly worked out as to sex. Not only the biological realities, our bodies, or the act of procreation and all recreational activities that may to it pertain, I mean the feelings, the thoughts, the very awkward, daily, entirely clothed social interactions that we have with one another. Anyway, these are some of my deeply problematic thoughts and feelings, which I'm not supposed to talk about, in my podcast, which isn't supposed to address those. My sister says, it simply reveals how much I hate women, like brethren men tend to do. Johan had some thoughts about whether it is even possible to have clean hands to begin with or get them dirty later either. You know, when I was young, I would have said, younger me would have said that there is there isn't anything, no, there's no such thing as incorrect thinking, just different perspectives. And I think as I get older and more cynical and I harden my heart, um, I'm not sure that I share that same sentiment. I, I think that 
it, you get to a certain point with certain facts and truths that you can't ignore. Um, that if you do ignore those, um, then then uh, I I find it impossible to believe that you are ignoring those things with a good heart and with good intentions. Um, if that kind of makes sense at all. Um, I'm not, I don't believe in evil. I, I think that evil is a bit of a cop-out. I, I really, really don't. I, I, I also, I'm, and this isn't a particularly unpopular opinion, but I think that we're all gray. Uh, I, I think stories about good and, and evil and, uh, and villains and heroes are awesome. They're a lot of fun, but life's just not like that. So I don't even, I wouldn't even begin to tell you what getting one's hands dirty means. Um, I'm not worried about being corrupted because I think to feel that you can be corrupted means that you have to believe that there are black and white evil and good things. And I, and I really don't at all. Now, always at risk of merely arguing semantics with Johan while secretly agreeing with him, we are both willing to get our hands dirty in the sense of dealing with conflict and complications. One thing he might not agree with me on is the idea that if you choose to do nothing, then doing nothing is what you are choosing to do. The thing you are contributing or doing is passivity. It's a choice, a role, and one that can have enormous consequences. See the Holocaust. I agree that explaining things like the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide as simply being the work of some kind of subhuman mythical monsters known as bad people, quite unlike us good people, is infantile. I don't see people as gray, though, exactly. I see us as going down dark or light paths and contributing to help and harm to various degrees. I don't think we're all equally harmful or helpful. See the Rwandan genocide. Having studied these events a bit and spoken with Angel, to me saying there's no such thing as evil sounds a bit like saying there's no such thing as harm or no one ever gets harmed or when people get hurt, it's never because someone else did it on purpose or maybe nothing is good, nothing is bad. It's all just point of view. To me, that sounds like kid stuff. Ben Kenobi sidestepping straight questions and talking about from a certain point of view. Clearly, people hurt people sometimes, and to say that the idea that someone has been hurt or that evil has been done is just a point of view sounds infantile to me. Crazy town. I don't think a police officer choking a man to death in the street is just against policy. I don't just think it's correctly described as merely incorrect behavior, inappropriate or wrong or against the rules. I think that it's extremely harmful and to more than just the one murdered person's life. Differing sharply from Friedrich Nietzsche... I think actions like this are evil. I think harm was done to Angel and many others like her. And I don't think that what was done to them is only problematic or not allowed or taboo. I don't think it was nothing more than a questionable set of actions dependent on your culture and point of view. I think Angel and others like her were deeply, lastingly harmed by people. People who could just have easily chosen not to harm these children. And to me, hurting kids when you can, simply by doing nothing, not hurt them, is evil. Not just unchristian, not just illegal, not just uncustomary in our culture, and not just something that depends on your point of view. 
I don't think believing in evil requires one to believe in the devil. I think not believing that human beings are capable of actions that can unemotionally, factually be described as evil is a fatal error. I think it all has to do with harming people. I think the only nuanced, balanced, informed way to describe matters sometimes is to say that Hitler and his cronies did evil that had lasting effects, not that they were perfectly fine or else maybe really, really inappropriate and not aging very well given our 21st century attitudes, depending upon your differing points of view. I think real, actual evil was done by Hitler and done in the Children of God cult, and that people like Angel are evidence of that, having suffered the lastingly harmful effects of that real, actual thing. But that's just me. Time to look in the wicked mailbag. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Walking to the wicked mailbag, opening the wicked mailbag. What's in the mailbag today? As to whether life is about getting one's hands dirty and engaging situations when there is trouble or conflict, Shalomi Homie says, I think this changes based on the subculture of the person in question, but for me, yes. I definitely saw or see life as something that involves my intentional engagement, dirty hands, to experience the goals rather than avoidance or abstinence. When I encounter upsetting things, it definitely makes me better and broadens my worldview. This has dramatically increased with age, however. As to whether or not she chooses to get involved in socially messy things, Sharon says, I want to get involved, but I try to stay out of it. I have an inner conflict. Miriam says, totally depends on my mood, the source of the conflict, and the reason for it. Gloria says, it depends if someone is being hurt, especially in the case of abuse or criminality. I'll also stand up for someone who is being character assassinated unjustly. AJ says, will it matter in a minute? Will it matter in an hour? Will it matter in a day? Will it matter in a week? Will it matter in a month? Will it matter in a year? The answers to those questions help me decide whether to let it go or get my hands dirty. This week's song is mostly about the indoctrination and subtractive piety attitudes we heard at meeting five times a week. So there's a bunch of soundscape stuff surrounding that, joking around about what definitely absolutely wasn't at all funny at the time. Things we weren't allowed to joke about. Putting the unspoken attitudes into words and singing them. Standing near a washing machine once, I was struck by how arrhythmic but kind of catchy the sound of a noisy washing machine can be. Wondered if I could record a song to the tempo and beat of a washing machine, as you do. Being a white guy, I generally need to have grooves handed to me, gift-wrapped from outside myself. This dishwasher wanted to collaborate. And there was this photocopier at work one time. And there may have been jackhammers operating outside my window that I've been tempted to use as rhythm samples. Who among us can truly say he has never wanted to make sweet, sweet funkadelic music from random machine noise? This is another of those silly songs that had a mood and a groove to it in my head, and to a much lesser degree, in the original crappy four-track recording. I always tried to better that version over the years, 
because I was, in every way, better, so thought I ought to be able to easily top Bolt from the Blue inspiration now. Well, it turns out, Bolt from the Blue inspiration is pretty tough to top. I had the Beatles' Yellow Submarine in a back corner of my mind when I did this one. The little of that is heard in it. Here's a snippet of my nephew and I singing Yellow Submarine when he was about five. So we sailed onto the sun Until we found the sea of green And we lived between the waves In our yellow submarine We all live in a yellow submarine Yellow submarine, yellow submarine We all live in a yellow submarine Yellow submarine, yellow submarine the friends are all aboard Many more live next door And the band begins to play So I recorded my washing machine Found a bit I could play to And added a bed track to that I'm a red sweater Could be better than to stay all nice and clean then I had George do some quick drums for this song, almost as an afterthought, while doing other more challenging ones. When I mentioned Yellow Submarine, George filled his lap with percussion things from his store shelves and added some percussion. Years ago, I messed around with a short recording single-handedly creating our church musical experience. I've used it as an intro to the song proper, as both are pretty simple and short. The idea is that 20 brethren men with well-thought-out ideas, backed up by Victorian brethren sources in a lifetime of hearing the Bible, fall before the might of a man who comes up with the idea that he's the one among us who is so humble that he knows better than to indulge in the folly of thinking about stuff. The Bible has all the answers, and the dearly departed brethren who came before read it more than we do, so who are we to try to come up with anything new? As an old gentleman in our assembly loved to say, if it's true, it isn't new. And if it's new, then it isn't true. And here is the unremarked upon epic non-hit Red Sweater. Idea. It just suits me, I never leave the washing machine 
blood and sweat, dry stains, you bad grease and dirt and food. Never seen the world firsthand, but I'm told that it's very rude. Nothing flows, I bend my nose in my mate's bag, so bright. Scream and shout, I kick them out, which of course is only right. Yeah, all been faded and tattered. No, one day too holy to mend up or dawn. But when I'm tagged and bagged, I won't be a filthy rag, just a faded twist of pinkish yarn. I'm a red sweater. Could be better than to stay all nice and clean I've got this idea It just suits me I never leave the washing machine The washing machine